Welcome to Bible study. This is Nick Krita, your host. Thank you for joining us. It's wonderful to come again around the Bible to learn from the Word of God. And we are continuing in this subject in the crucible with Christ. And today we are going to talk a little bit about the extreme heat. Please stay with us and um, learn together from the Bible what uh, we are going to to share with you today. It's good to have uh, our panel uh, more complete today. And uh, it's good to have you back with us, Len, joining us from the beautiful sunshine, uh, Queensland. Yes, the sun is shining. It's a lovely day. And it's very nice to be able to join the panel again. And hello, listeners. And Joe, it's good to have you with us too. Thank you, Nick. I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Will, thank you for joining us. It's great to visit the lives of the faithful. Nick, I'm inspired. Thank you. Lija, it's also good to have you. Yes, it's very rewarding. Praise the Lord for that. Brenton, it's good to have you joining us from uh, Southeast. Um, I hope uh, the weather is nice and cool there. Nick, the uh, subject for discussion today is extreme heat. What we have down here is extreme cold. So we have the opposite. (laughs) We're looking forward to sharing a warm subject with everybody. And Ken, it's good to have you with us uh, too. Thank you, Nick. It's always a privilege to be part of the team. Now, we also, um, I'd like to thank you, Ken, for preparing this uh, Bible study you are going to facilitate today. Uh, Please take us through. Thank you, Nick. Hello, listeners, and welcome to this week's Bible study, Extreme Hate. Today, we're going to be looking into some of the more heavy things of uh, God and things he has done. So I'd just like to advise all of those who may have younger children listening that some of these things will be, uh, shall we say, uh, straight out of God's word. And we'll be using those words which younger children may find difficult or you may not want them to hear. So I just advise you before we get going. As the wife of the famous Christian writer C.S. Lewis was dying, Lewis wrote, Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all. Some of us reject God completely. For others, like Lewis, There is the temptation to change our view of God and imagine all sorts of bad things about him. The question is, just how hot can it get? How much hate is God willing to risk putting his people through in order to bring about his ultimate purpose of shaping us into the image of his son, Jesus Christ? Brenton, would you like to start us with prayer? Certainly, Ken. Father in heaven, we are studying a topic today that sometimes, I must admit, we really struggle for answers to. You are an infinite God and we are your children. And I pray that through this study, we will learn to trust you more. We're going to be looking at an experience from the life of Abraham, the life of Job, the life of Paul, even the life of Jesus and some of the crucibles that these people went through some of the extreme tests that God allowed them to go through. Help us always to remember that despite all of this, God still loves us, he still cares for us, and he would not allow these things to happen to us unless it were for our best good. Lord, at times we can't see that, 
But I pray that in our study today, as we share your word with those who listen to us, that we may feel that love surround us, both as panel members and those who are listening. May we feel that love that Jesus and that God has for us and realise that all things do ultimately work together for good to those who love you. We thank you for hearing us this day in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Brenton. As we journey deeper into the crucibles of trials and tribulations, we come across many stories which on the surface appear to be very harsh things that God asked his people to do, one of which is the story of Abraham and the sacrifice of his son Isaac at Morah, as outlined in Genesis 22. Will, would you take us through this one? Certainly, Ken. Abraham and his walk with God was already being identified as a man of trust and faith, but perhaps no tests could have been more severe than the one in Genesis 22, when God commanded, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Now, this was an astounding command because Isaac was the son of of promise. Uh, God had promised several times that from Abraham's own body would come a nation as multitudinous as the stars in heaven. Later, Abraham specifically told that the promise would be through Isaac. Well, given that God's testing of Abraham involved the command to do something he elsewhere forbids, Jeremiah 31, 7.31 says we mustn't uh, offer human sacrifices, we're led to ask, why did God command Abraham to offer Isaac? Well, I concur with Dr. Charles Swindoll when he writes, why? Why would a good and loving God ask an obedient and faithful man to do this? The answer can be found in the original language of Moses, the inspired human author of Genesis. The word nasha is translated tested, tested in Genesis 22 verse 1. and has the idea of proving the quality of something, usually by putting it through a trial of some kind. So I think, and the comments will follow probably from the panel on this, but I think God wanted to prove the validity and the authenticity of Abraham's faith. Thank you, Will. This seems an awful thing to ask. What is going on here? Brenton, can you throw some light on this? Ken, in answer to what is going on here, he's being asked to do something, Abraham, that seems incredible. He's a very old man. Isaac was given to he and his wife as a gift. They were both past the age of childbearing. So therefore, when Isaac was born, he was the son of promise, as we've mentioned. However, God is really saying to him, I gave you Isaac. Now I'm asking for him back again. And it seems to me that we can learn a very, very important lesson from this story in chapter 22. That is that no gift that God gives us is too um, important for us to give to God. In other words, there is nothing that we can give to God that is not important. And the most important thing in his life and in the life of his wife, Sarah, was their son, Isaac. 
and uh, now God is asking for him back. And um, I think it gave Abraham, after the test, a better understanding of what it was going to cost God the Father to give his son for this world. That's something we will never, ever understand on this earth. I believe even in heaven it will take the ages of eternity to understand the cost, the sheer cost for God to give his son for the salvation of man. So in a small way, Abraham had to give the most important thing in his life back to God. God gave the most important thing he had, his son, for the gift of salvation to this world. I think that's the primary and overriding lesson we can learn from this chapter. Thank you, Brenton. This was just a test. God never intended for Abraham to kill his son. This highlights something very important about the way God sometimes works. God may ask us to do something that he never intends for us to complete. He may ask us to go somewhere he never intends us to arrive at. What is important to God is not necessarily the end, but what we learn as we reshaped by the process. There is an interesting comment that Jesus makes in John 8, verse 56. Len, would you take us through this one? Yeah, so this refers to Abraham, but I'd like to uh, just expose the actual um, situation where Jesus spoke what he said in John 8, 56. John chapter 8 and verse 48 introduces a conversation between the Jews and Jesus. And the Jews start the conversation off this way. They said to him, aren't we right in saying you are, some, are a Samaritan and devil-possessed or demon-possessed? Well, what a way to open a conversation. You can be sure that with most people, that would get their hackles up straight away. So we're talking about extreme heat, situations which involve high emotions. And so they, uh, they started off this way. You see, they had attacked Jesus in various ways. They had attacked his logic, but it was irrefutable. They had attacked his character, but it was impeccable. They had attacked his teachings, but they were incomparable. So now they were attacking his uh, heritage. And they felt very comfortable doing this because, as they said, we are Abraham's seed. But you, well, you might be a Samaritan, the most despised of all people, and you're probably devil-possessed. They felt they were in a secure position. And Jesus simply said something which rocked their boat. And this is what he said in John 8.56. I'll read John 8.56. He says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, Jesus is saying to them, Abraham foresaw the time when I would be on earth. In other words, it's almost as if Abraham knew I was coming. The implication is, did Abraham know you were going to be about? Now, 
can we prove this from the Bible, that Jesus meant that Abraham knew that he was coming? Well, we have it in two places, but I'll read it in Genesis 18, verse 18. It says, uh, this is God speaking to Abraham, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nations and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. And here Jesus was saying to these recalcitrant, uncooperative uh, Jews who were full of themselves, Abraham knew that I was the one that God had promised through whom all the nations would be blessed. Now, I think Jesus diffused this situation very well. But at the same time, he spoke the truth. And I think they uh, were not very happy about that. This whole situation was a not a game, but there was a lot of one-upmanship happening here. I don't know if you know what one-upmanship is. Somebody says something, you say, oh, I've got something better than that. And so it goes. But the Jews were never quite equal to the situation. Nevertheless, Jesus came under a lot of pressure, a lot of emotional tension, a lot of extreme heat, to use the title of this Bible study. And uh, he spoke very clearly here, and the Jews understood although they didn't like what he said. Thank you, Len. We see in this story that Abraham trusted God, not knowing the reason for this request. This is one of the challenges Christians face when things come upon them. We hear all the time about the love of God, but then we may face a major issue in our lives. Our natural reaction may be to think that God has deserted us, but this is far from the truth. As we see in Matthew 28 and verse 20, Leecher, would you read this one for us? Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. So Jesus assures people here through this promise that no matter what comes upon us, he will be with us. I was contemplating in regard to this that through whatever we go in our lives, through whatever tests God takes us or allows us to go, it's for our own good. It's a it's a reshaping process. So I'm thinking here that Abraham was tested at a quite old age. He lived about 175 years. And uh, when Isaac was born, he was about 100. So by the time he was asked to bring his son as a sacrifice. His son was about a, t- a teenager. So let's say 14, 17. So Abraham was about 117, let's say. Didn't he learn enough lessons by that age? Did God need needed to, to test him again at this old age? So I'm thinking about applying this in in my life. If I don't have enough interactions with God in my prime age or middle age, God needs to test me even in older age. 
when I will be, I don't know, about 70, 80. So it, this highlights for me something very important about the way God sometimes work, works with us. So God may ask us to do something that he never intends for us to complete, or he may ask us to go somewhere he never intends for us to arrive at. But what is important is that God is not necessarily the end, but what we learn as we are reshaped by the process. So the key here for me is that in my test surviving and learning through the process was that I know God's voice. So Abraham learned God's voice through only through that process. And God knew about that. And God allowed him to test him at an old age to, to know God's voice. And it's very important for me to learn God's voice because on the other hand, there is another voice who comes very often in our lives. Thank you, Lecha. And just quickly, um, following on from what Lydia has said, I believe that this test in Genesis 22, had Abraham been unsuccessful in this test, he would never have been known as the father of the faithful. And I doubt that Christ would have been quoting him in John 8:56. So I believe it's pretty important. God said at the end of that trial, now I know for sure that you are faithful to me. And then he reiterated the promises that he'd made way back in Genesis chapter 12, that you, a great nation will come from you as the sand of the sea, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's pretty important to understand that in, in succeeding in that test, he also gained for himself the title, the father of the faithful. And therefore, in Hebrews chapter 11 and all the other instances where Abraham is referred to, basically, it's all going back to this final ultimate test. We could say, Ken, in a sense, that he had finished finishing school in regard to his faith. Thank you, Brenton. Joe, you have a comment? Yes, um, it would appear that I believe that God knew that Abraham was ready for this test. It was not something that surprised God. He was waiting to see what Abraham would do. However, we have instances where Abraham had failed tests, numerous tests, with his interactions with the Egyptians, um, Hagar situation. And, you know, um, maybe sometimes we're not ready for these severe tests until we're a lot more mature in our walk with Christ, with God. And perhaps with Abraham, it took for him to be 115 or whatever it was, for him to be ready to endure something that was um, something that was a spectacle, not to God, because God knew how this would work out, but perhaps the on onlooking universe, perhaps, and as an object lesson, as a learning experience for Abraham himself. And um, when he saw that, you know, when his hand was stayed by an angel and there was a ram in the thicket, wow, what a what a, an epiphany for him, you know, as all these things fell into place in his in his own mind and as he began to grasp what it is that God is doing for mankind. So I think it's... Uh, a lesson on many levels, but perhaps his age is to do with when he was actually ready. You know, sometimes we're not ready to sit the hard tests until fairly, de- f- you know, fairly far further down the track with our in our faith experience. 
Thank you, Joe. That's a very uh, good comment. I, I was just going to add what um, Joe was uh, saying that, and I believe that was a very important object lesson. Now, it's been said that with age and gray hair, more wisdom comes. And hopefully that's the case, and it's still true today. You know, sometimes we can go through some hardship and difficulties to be able to show even our children and or people around how you could go through such things because you you have learned you are tough enough if you like and in the bible says that we are a living testimony i mean we can be probably for some people the only good news or the good message from god that they can see And I believe all these things uh, are relevant today. We need to put that in the context for us. And uh, instead of just um, complaining or uh, whinging or, uh, oh, while I'm going through this now, and probably just stay faithful like Abraham. And uh, God will reward uh, us all and will hopefully may say the words he said about Abraham too. Thank you, Nick. Liam, do you have something to add? Yes, uh, Joe has opened up my mind with regard to some of these tests that we as Christians have to deal with. Now, I've taught many people how to do four-wheel driving, and generally what happens, we tell the uh, the newbies what to do, and uh, then... Somebody who's experienced goes ahead on a particular course, piece of ground, whatever it is, and we instruct them as they go. And after they've passed that, they feel pretty good. And then later on, when they've been prepared, they can do it themselves without any fear, maybe with caution, but not with fear. And this appears to be how it goes in life. When we are immature in a particular thing, we're not ready to deal with it. But when we've had a little bit of experience, we've had a few tests and trials and issues and stresses in our lives and come through, then we're ready for the bigger things. Thank you, Liam. Well, those words of Matthew 28 and verse 20, where Jesus says, And lo, I am with you always, even on to the end of the world. These are very comforting words spoken by Jesus himself, also first spoken by God in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 6, where he says, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear, nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The Bible has many stories for us to read and learn from, to help us to grow, to encourage us, to give us hope to see who is this God we trust in. Another such story is found in Hosea 2 and verse 1 to 12. The story of Hosea looks at God's methods to deal with his people. What does God say he is going to do? Hosea 2 verses 2 to 3 and verses 5 to 7. Now, these passages may appear a little cryptic, but after reading, uh, I think we hope to unpack the meaning and implications for us. So beginning in Hosea 2, verses 2 and 3, Plead with your mother, 
plead, for she is not my wife, neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born and make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. Their mother has been unfaithful and has conceived them in disgrace. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my food, my water, my wool and my linen, my olive oil and my drink. Therefore, I will block her path with thorn bushes. I will wall her in so that she cannot find her way. She will chase after her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my husband as at first, for then I was better off than now. Well, just to introduce these passages and a little bit of background, God paints Israel as the unfaithful wife who is no longer worthy to be compared to a wife. This shows that this relationship was dramatically broken. Israel had left God and now was pursuing other gods, worshipping strange gods, and God warns Israel that if she does not put away her unfaithful ways, she would be judged. Though the relationship had been broken down, the blessing had continued, but that would be taken away if Israel did not turn, turn away from her idolatrous ways. The interesting thing for me is that the, the phrase, I will hedge up your way with thorns, and I wondered what could that possibly mean? And I believe it's to bring Israel to repentance. God promised to set a hedge of thorns on the sides of her path so that it would hurt. It would actually hurt when Israel went off the correct path. And so the wrong paths would be hard to find. So there's a a painful barrier there. And when God hedges our way with thorns, we usually don't like it. We sometimes think God is against us. He's a bit of a killjoy. When the thorns hurt and we can't find the wrong paths, often it is consequences which alert us that we're on the wrong path. I would think, and there's probably other ways of looking at it, that it's really an act of grace that God would hedge us in, surround us, place a barrier, if you like, between us and that which would destroy us. It is really one of the gracious expressions of God's love to hedge up our way with thorns and to wall us in. It's like a protection, you know, it's like your heart, your sinful heart desires to go this way and you proceed in that direction, but up comes a a wall of thorns. You could say it was consequences, whatever it may be, and you go, oh, this hurts. Go back, go back, find the old path that leads to, that is God's way. And interestingly, the wayward wife says, I will go and return to my husband. You know, when the the passing pleasure of sin is finished, the result is often painful. And we then see how good it was to follow the Lord. Um, The prodigal son comes to my mind, and we will remember when he hit rock bottom and was eating with the pigs in a pig pen, which was unthinkable to a Jewish mind. He remembered how good, how good his life was in his father's house. And it's the same sometimes in our relationships that even with the best partner or friend, the grass always seems better somewhere else. And in our walk with the Lord to our idols, seem sometimes more attractive until God exposes them. And sometimes we've experienced painful things as a result of straying off the path. Um, But then when we've 
when we've felt the pain, then we are ready to return to our first husband, the Lord. So, I mean, I know that there's so much to say here, but this is just one take. Thank you, Joe. Brenton. And then, um, yeah, Joe did touch on some good points there, uh, Ken. Uh, another point, if you look at verses five to seven, which is interesting, their mother's been unfaithful. What we have here, I believe, is God is using Hosea as an example of how unfaithful Israel has been to him because the the bounties, the benefits that he gives to Israel, they prostitute in the sense that they use those bounties and benefits to worship Baal. So there's a total non-recognition of the goodness of God in giving even the daily supplies of food and drink and things like that. And I believe that message comes through the book of Hosea fairly strongly, that uh, God gives graciously to everybody, uh, the, uh, shall we say, the sinful as well as the those who are trying to follow the Lord. But here he, he's talking to his people and saying, I have given you everything. What do I get in return for it? I get total ungratefulness. I get the fact that the gifts that I've given you, you actually use to worship false gods. Your focus is not on me. Your focus is not on the thankfulness that should come about because you recognize that I'm the giver of all these gifts. You actually claim that these gifts are given by Baal. So therefore you use them to worship Baal. So I think that there's that particular aspect in what Joe has read as well that's actually very important. Thank you, Brenton. Lynn? Yes. Well, we've probably all heard it said, the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. The question is, what happens when you get to the other side of the fence and look back? And I think this is the case here that uh, Joe was reading from the book of Hosea about Hosea's unfaithful wife, uh, referring to the land of Israel and God. God is the husband, Israel is the unfaithful wife. Uh, We sometimes in our own experience think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And when we get to the other side of the fence, we find out it's greener from where we came from. Talking of the grass being greener on the other side of the fence, I, I saw a statement some time ago, which I thought was very, very good. It said, the grass is greener on whichever the side of the fence you feed and water. And I thought that was a very good comment. Nick, would you take us through the next section of Hosea, chapter 2 and verses 8, 9, and then 10? Sure, Ken. And again, just to mention that um, Hosea was living in, uh, in that period of time when Israel, you know, was separated from Judah and uh, Israel going astray, you know, doing uh, really bad things. And this was a prophecy also because that extended all the way to our time. And we may be able to see that in, um, uh, in a moment, but let's uh, uh, read um, from Hosea chapter 2, and this time verse 8, 9, and 10. Again, I would like to say here, this is quite for a mature audience, you know, some of the language used here in uh, these uh, passages. And uh, I'm just wondering if we have some young listeners there, maybe the parents may need to 
to do something there. But it says here, I'm reading from a New Living Translation, and it says, she doesn't realize it was I who gave her everything she has. The grain, the new wine, the olive oil. I even gave her silver and gold. But she gave all my gifts to Baal. But now I will take back the ripened grain and new wine. I generously provided each harvest season. I will take away the wool and linen clothing I gave her to cover her nakedness. And in verse 10, he says, I will strip her naked in public while all her lovers look on. No one will be able to rescue her from my hands. That's a very interesting uh, passage in the Bible. Now, just notice that it's used in these verses, her, she. And we know that in the Bible, a group of people or a church is uh, known or linked to a woman, which is a faithful woman or a adulterous woman, unfaithful woman. In this case, in Israel, uh, when Hosea wrote these things that apply in that time, but also easily can apply in our days. And I just want to draw your attention. Do you know that even today, you may heard about that language, the mother church. You know, you may heard about that even uh, the mother church will say, come home, rebellious daughters. I like you to notice this. Because there is a church which God clothed with, you know, with gold and with linen, with all those things. But they went astray, went astray. And God is again merciful and calling all those people in in that group or in that church. Because that's what he wanted with Israel too. Even though Israel walked away from God. And we find ourselves here, even as you know, the the daughters or the children, if you read the, the book of um, Hosea in his entirety, you'll understand that every single party has a role to play there. It's not only about the unfaithful uh, woman or mother, it's also about the children. And um, I would like to draw that lesson today, that we are responsible for what we are doing, and we are not to follow the ways of the unfaithful woman in this case, or the unfaithful church, put it more clearly. We are to follow God, who's the leader, who's the one who guide us and lead us in all truth. May God help us. Thank you, Nick. Uh, Joe, you wanted to say something on that? I think it's probably worth mentioning that this was the extreme heat crucible experience that Israel did not really need to experience, but for their own choices and their waywardness. So, yeah, I would just say that we could spare ourselves a lot of suffering if we were obedient and followed the Lord closely. That's such a true statement. Brenton. And I suggest um, just adding to that something that's worth thinking about. Some 70 years before this, there was a guy by the name of Ahab. During the time of Ahab, they were worshipping Baal. A prophet called Elijah came along, and at the end of all of that, after three and a half years of no rain, 
um, God sent rain and so there was the opportunity for a great revival in Israel. Now, this coincides with some of the comments we've been making so far today. I think Joe mentioned earlier on about the fact that the, um, if you don't learn lessons, the mistakes can be repeated through generation after generation. What you've got here is you've got Hosea, who probably um, ministered from round about 755 BC to about 723 BC or thereabouts. We don't know precisely, but within a couple of years of the end of his ministry, Israel was taken into captivity by one of her lovers, namely Assyria. So the lesson I think that we can learn from this is they didn't learn anything from, they didn't remember the example of what happened to the um, children of Israel under Elijah. If they had learned those lessons, one asks yourself the question, would they have been as far from God as they were now? I suspect not. So I think applying that lesson today is the reason these things are in the Bible for us uh, we're told, therefore, our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. I believe that if we don't learn from them in the sense that we don't apply the same things that they did, um, we will make the same mistakes. God hedges us in because he wants us to see that if we trust him totally, however prickly the situation is, he will bring us through it. Thank you, Brenton. Well, those were some very strong words in Hosea from God, along with two important issues. Brenton, would you take us through what these issues are? Well, the issues, as, as outlined in our study of these, in the experience that we're, we're discussing with Hosea and his wife, Gomer, and uh, using that as an analogy of um, God's relationship to Israel, First, we, we risk not recognising that God is at work. And Joe has touched on the fact that uh, about the hedging up with thorns. Now, probably the first lesson we can learn is that when we go through hard times, God is trying to, I believe, teach us something. Even if we are following God, he's still trying to teach us something. And if we're not following God, he's trying to get us back on track, if that makes sense, Ken. So, so the lesson is that if you're going through hard times, even if you are not the least bit interested in God, there are many, many people, you, you know as well as I do, there are many people who can attest to the fact that they were not even looking for God. But in hard circumstances and hard times, they turned to God and uh, they eventually found him. So the first lesson that we can learn is that regardless of the circumstances, God is in there somewhere. He may be difficult to find, but he is in there. And I think the second lesson that we can learn is this. We risk misunderstanding when God is at work. It says we may recognize that God is at work, but we don't like what he is doing. While we are feeling hurt and embarrassed, it is easy to blame God for being cruel for not intervening or for not caring, but God is always working to renew us through the covenant of his love. Can I use the example of, and it's a frequently used example, you tell a child not to do something. You tell a child not to go on the road. You tell a child not to touch the hot stove. You tell a child not to do this and that. And it's almost guaranteed they'll go ahead and do it. So <laughs> that's the other lesson that we can learn. I think that... Um, 
if we trust God, he will bring us through these things, even when we can't see the outcome. And you know what? The character building um, business uh, can, in regard to extreme heat, often comes about not from the result, from the process of actually going through it. That's what builds your character, not necessarily the end result. Thank you, Brendan. That is so true. I am reminded of 1 Corinthians and chapter 13, verse 12, when I hear this where it tells us, for now, we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as I am known today. In other words, we know or understand some things, but not everything. A good example of this is the story of Job, a tribal chieftain of outstanding piety and integrity. He is blessed by God with such worldly prosperity that he is the greatest of all men of the East. Job, first, uh, Job chapter 1 and verse 3. Will, would you give us a short summary of what befalls Job and who carries it out as told in Job 1, uh, chapter 1 and verse 6? Certainly, Ken. Let me preface it by saying the Bible showcases the faithfulness of his champions, the faith champions, throughout history as an encouragement and an example to others. When we think of extreme suffering in the Bible, our minds immediately turn to Job. If anyone suffered, he did. The story begins when Satan shows up before God and the Lord asks this haughty and arrogant deceiver an astonishing question. Have you considered my servant Job? As the patriarch had walked around on the earth minding his own business, he is suddenly, as it were, thrust on the stage before onlookers of the entire universe and becomes a focal point of proof of faithfulness amidst terrible adversity. God says something remarkable to Satan. Have you considered my servant Job? There is none on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But of course we know that Satan quickly responds, Job worships you because you take good care of him. But stretch your hand out and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. So the Lord says to Satan, very well, then everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Now, interestingly, God does not accede to Satan's challenge to strike Job himself. He allows his faithful servant to become the target of adversity. And you can read the story in the book of Job. Let me summarize by saying, first, the Sabaean bandits steal his oxen and donkeys. Next, fire destroys his sheep. Then a Chaldean raiding party rides off with all his camels. And as bad as this was, it's not nearly as devastating as the news to follow that his sons and his daughters had perished during a party at their oldest brother's house. You know, Job must have thought, surely, God, this is just too much to bear. But more was to come. Painful boils strike Job. And then there was a wife, his wife, and a group of friends, so-called, who were not exactly um, helpful or supportive. His wife says to him, are you still holding on to your integrity? Just curse God and die. That's in Job 2 verse 9. Do you know, but despite these multiple attacks from Satan, Job did not curse the Lord. 
He remained faithful to the very end, and as a consequence, Job has inspired and encouraged millions of God's children for thousands of years. Nick, you want something to add to that? Just a very quick thing here. We realize here that God is the giver of life. I mean, he had the right. I mean, he gives life and he had the right to take life when he wants, if he wants. Sometimes we thinking that, uh, you know, why some young people even die, things like that. We don't know what's God's plan for that. And God may even take away, because Will was mentioning uh, Job's children. And in back in those days, it was believed that um, you are punished or you, you are a sinner. Not necessarily. Not necessarily. Some people can be taken to rest until the resurrection because God knows the condition also. And it may be a blessing for us not to go through life, you know, necessarily a long longevity of life and um, walk away from God. Brenton? Ken, it might have been a blessing. <laughs> I don't know that Job saw it as a blessing at the time. And the reason for that would be because of Job's religious understanding at that time. His religious understanding, despite the fact that he was not Jewish, he was an Edomite, uh, his understanding of God would have been that if I'm faithful to God, God will look after me. Now, absolutely everything that's happened, I mean, we use the term figuratively, don't we? The roof has caved in on him. Well, the roof has caved in on him. He's lost everything. So far, his body hasn't been touched. But everything else has has um, fallen apart for him. He's lost his family. He's lost his possessions. He's lost everything. This would have gone to the crux of his religious experience. He would have been saying to himself, I don't deserve this. Why is this happening to me? And God is not giving any answers. Um, but then we need to remember what Will read that this statement, this discussion between God and Satan took place in, in the presence of the sons of God, or if we want to use another term, the, um, the inhabitants of other worlds, as well as uh, the inhabitants of heaven. And we are not told, here's an important point, we are not told that this conversation took place in heaven. Hayden, uh, Satan was excluded from heaven when he was kicked out. So where this actually took place, we don't know. It may have been on one of the other worlds. But the facts of the matter is a lot of people were listening and looking on to what was being said here. And poor old Job, he's going through all of this, but he doesn't know that he's a spectacle to the whole universe. Um, it's hard enough trying to bear something alone but when you can't understand while you're bearing it, <laughs> it makes it even worse. <laughs> so this is the situation he finds himself in at this particular point. Thank you, Brenton. Well, that sure is some trial that Job had. If it were us, how would we respond? I think there are only two ways. One, we could become bitter and angry with God, even turning away from God, believing him to be cruel or even non-existent. Or two, Turning to God even more, believing he still cares for us and has a plan for our future. Len, there are three things that we see in Job 1 verse 21 that may help us when we face serious trials in our life. What are these? I believe Job is one of the heroes of the Bible, along with Daniel, 
Joseph, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And uh, chapter 1 of Job and verse 21, I think it's one of the most beautiful verses in the whole of the scriptures. With all this trouble and having to bear it from being very wealthy and very influential to basically coming down to having nothing, Job, first of all, recognized that when he was born, he had nothing. And when he died, nothing was going to be of any use. And so he said, naked I came out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. Not to the womb, of course, but uh, to death. The second thing he acknowledges that the Lord is in control. And he says, the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. And then the third thing he says is, blessed be the name of the Lord. He asserts his, uh, his uh, intention to continue to worship the Lord regardless of the circumstances. Now I'm going to read it as one piece. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. What a testimony. Yes. Thank you, Len. How amazing is that? After all Job endured, he still had faith in God and believed God still had a plan for him. In the New Testament, we see another character who endured more than most people. Brenton, who was this and what hardships did he face? Ken, his name uh, we know in Jewish terminology is Saul, but the name that we know him most commonly by is Paul. And in 2 Corinthians 11.23, he's talking to the Corinthian church and he's reciting the fact that some of his critics claim that they are um, spiritually superior to him because they come from Jewish Christianity in Jerusalem. And because he was born in um, Tarshish, which is in modern-day Turkey, he was somehow inferior to them. But he says this. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? Here we go again. Abraham gets a mention. So am I. Are these ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labours, more abundant, in stripes, above measure, in prisons, more frequently, in deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've been in the in the deep. He goes on to recite other things as well. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But basically he's saying because of the hardships I've suffered, I am in no way inferior to these people who claim a superior spiritual lineage to me. And I think that Paul, we might remember that um, when God spoke to Ananias and told him to go and see Saul or Paul, had actually said to Ananias, I am going to show this man what things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, in the whole history of our study this this quarter, or our Bible studies, Ken, 
I believe that that's a very important point because Jesus made the point very early in the piece, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And I think Paul here, he's referring to these countless beatings and other things. He's referring to things that he has suffered for righteousness' sake, not because he's an obnoxious character, but because he is doing what God would have him to do. If we are prepared to go through the same experience as Paul, hopefully not to this degree, but if we are prepared to undergo the trials that God allows us to go through when we are trying to be faithful to him, I believe our characters will be refined in the extreme heat, just as his is being here. Thank you, Brenton. Well, if anybody was to give it all away, you would think it would have been Paul, who endured one thing after another, but never give up his faith. Leecher, what will be Paul's reward for all he endured? If we become victorious through our tests, Paul gives us uh, a promise in his book, and he says that now there is an in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. You see, all through these uh, stories and uh, experiences, we learn again and again that God is with his people. And uh, not that other people are not suffering or going through hardship and difficult times, those people who are not recognizing God as their uh, um, you know, savior and leader. No, they go into those things too. But for the believer, and this is the, the panchia, for the believer, there is the assurance that God will take you through. Never despair, never give up, because God knows every single thing you're going through and will help you to go through victoriously. Thank you, Nick. So far this quarter, we have considered many examples of life crucibles that God uses to purify Christlikeness in our lives. However, some people may view these examples and conclude that God is a severe and demanding taskmaster. Sure, some may say we know that God wants something good for us, but these examples don't reveal much care and love. Instead, God looks more like a bully. He sets out with the purpose that causes a considerable hard times and there's nothing we can, we can do about it. It's true that while living on this sin-filled earth, we will understand only a little of why things happen. In heaven, we'll understand so much more. But for now, we have to live with the tension of believing that God is present and cares for us, even though things don't always feel that way. We'd just like to finish now. Will, would you close in prayer? Certainly. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, it becomes more and more clear to us that the mystery of suffering and adversity that befalls your children does have its place in the restoration of mankind and preparation for life in eternity, the life that you offer us all. So we ask you to be close to us when things get tough and also ask you to help us stand firm though the heavens fall. We ask it 
In our Saviour's name, Amen. Amen. Well, thank you so much, everyone, for being part of this uh, panel today and a great discussion. Uh, we're learning more and more how important it is to stay faithfully to God. We invite you, my dear listener, to join us again when we are going to dig a little bit more in what that means to struggle with all energy, to stay um, positive and uh, fight on. The battle is on, but it's won by uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. Until then, may God richly bless you and continue to walk safely in the footsteps of Jesus.